This morning, I will read from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. In this passage, James describes two kinds of wisdom whose origins and outcomes differ. Wisdom for James is less about knowledge and experience and more about how we relate to one another. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For when you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Lord God, help us all to be peacemakers. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. In gathering information for a memorial, I sometimes ask family members if their father or mother or loved one had a favorite saying that they were known for. For the memorial of Bob Overcashier, um, his children said of that he, was, he had this fondness for this particular saying and was known for saying it. We get... We get old so fast and so late smart. Okay, for those of you that need me to slow it down, we get old so fast and so late smart. Most of us think wisdom in these terms, that it's acquired with age, that it is about life experience and knowledge. But James has an entirely presentation of wisdom because for him, it's primarily about relationships and how we relate to one another. As you know, I serve as a spiritual uh, advisor, as a volunteer at Juvenile Hall along with Steve and, and um, Charlie Batesel. And the other day, we were told by our boss that there's some new recruits, some, a couple men in their 20s. And I'm thinking, wow, is, is, are we being replaced? Uh, no, we need, we need the additional help, and I think they're going to relate well to many of the residents there. And I was telling one of them, one of the residents, that this was the case, and he goes, no offense, but I prefer the old guys. <laughs> so it, he really had me all the way home. I'm driving home going, okay, where was the offense? 
Is it because he doesn't think of me as old and therefore I'm irrelevant to him? Or that I'm among the old guys? Well, I'll let you be the judge. <laughs> In the first half of chapter 3, or the beginning of chapter 3, James has warned us that the power of words can be used for good or evil as they roll off our tongues. Now he leaves off with the tongue and goes to the heart. As words are to the tongue, so wisdom is to our hearts. And as followers of Christ, James says, what should emanate from our hearts is a wisdom that's from God. But just as the tongue can be an instrument for words that wound and hurt, so wisdom, so-called wisdom, can masquerade as bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Such wisdom, he says, is earthly. It's soiled by qualities that create disorder and division. But the wisdom James advocates promotes good relationships and peace. Apparently, James is warning of individuals who want to be teachers, and yet they lack necessary qualifications. Apparently, they're good talkers. They're well, they're well informed as well. They see their ability to persuade and influence others, but James questions their motives and their character. The caution he issues to his readers reminds me of something we in session are reading by teacher, writer, and activist, and Quaker Parker Palmer. He wrote an article entitled, Leadership from Within, Reflections on Leadership and Spirituality. Palmer says, a leader is someone who has an unusual degree of power to project onto other people his or her light or shadow. Someone who may influence others for good and their benefit, or someone who casts a shadow and uses their leadership for ill and to the detriment of those they lead. Palmer says, the problem is that leaders tend to ignore what goes on inside themselves. They've risen to power largely by being competent and effective in the external realm, even at the cost of their own internal awareness. So every leader loves being up front, loves the, the, um, the dynamic of being among a crowd and having something to say. But he says that, that leaders, if they don't check their, their inner needs, they're going to use that opportunity for their own personal advancement and advantage, whether they're aware of it or not. And he says, our culture supports this. Leaders are supported by our American culture that wants to externalize everything, that wants to see the good life as a matter of outer arrangements rather than inner well-being. Think of it. It's how we relate to one another on a daily basis. We want to know how it's going, but we don't ask the personal question. Tell me about your heart. What is it that that's weighing it down? What is it that you care about? How's your soul and your relationship with God? Tell me about that. No, we want to know the externals. 
and we focus there. So James delineates two kinds of wisdom, one that casts a shadow and one that gives light. The shadow is due to bitter jealousy, which represents an over-concern for oneself and one's needs and one's rights. It's what we mistake for wisdom when we fail to recognize what real wisdom is. Cleverness would be another way to describe it. It's not wisdom that helps people get along with one another. It's cleverness that results in a division and factions. In fact, you can tell the type of wisdom by looking at its outcome. One is sown in disorder, and it divides. The other is sown in peace, and it unites. True wisdom yields a harvest of right relationships, but false wisdom causes distrust and division. I was startled the other day to hear a commentator speaking about um, the past few decades and, and the political scene over the past few decades. And what this author or what this uh, commentator observed is that you can get a lot of people to agree on something based on what they're against. That what unites people more than anything in a political way is what they oppose. And they might come from very divergent backgrounds and have multiple issues they're concerned about. But if there's one thing that they can get that will unite them, that's what politicians and, and, um, and the people who support them, the infrastructure, I can't think of what they're called. But you, you, uh, each of you use your own word. But um, <laughs> that, that people will rally around such a thing. And the startling thing for us, the stunning thing is, that's not how we are united in faith. It's not what we're against. It's who unites us and what we're for. That's what brings us together. That's what, we, that's what we're about. Not speaking against things, but speaking for. Pointing people to God and uniting our common belief. James calls this clever kind of wisdom earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. It's earthly because it exhibits our base selfishness, typical of our fallen nature. It's unspiritual because it's limited to human instinct and ingenuity. And it's marked by a dullness and a blindness to spiritual matters. And it's demon-like because it sets God's people against one another in envy and strife, and it uses power in a way that hurts others. Previously, James has told us that the key to mature faith is to listen to God's word, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Receive with meekness, with humility, God's word that becomes implanted in you. And the reason he's speaking of it being implanted is that through the inner working of God's spirit, God's word becomes part of us. And it begins to transform our character more like God's own. James says the person who is wise and understanding will show it by her or his good life. Actions done 
and humility that derives from such wisdom. The adjective for good here does not refer to the quality of goodness, but rather the beauty and benefits of goodness, its attractiveness, its wholesomeness, its helpfulness, a way of being good that everyone can see. Listen to how the message compares these two ways of viewing wisdom in its translation of this passage. It's the way you live, not, not, what you, not the way you talk that counts. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at one another's throats. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with one another. For this next section, I ask that you listen carefully, lest you think I'm saying something I'm not. On Friday evenings, I try not to miss PBS NewsHour's discussion with syndicated columnists Mark Shields and New York Times columnist David Brooks. This past Friday, I thought David Brooks' description of the problem in our country was stated so well. I'm going to repeat it. To me, the big event of the week is not one thing. It's the whole agglomeration of things. It's the rising tide of enmity in the country. Donald Trump attacking judges, attacking John McCain, Senator Blumenthal, the town halls, the riots in Berkeley, and you've got the incivility on the floor of the United States Senate. You have got just a rising tide in every single story. Every time Kellyanne Conway goes on TV, there's another fight over whoever's interviewing her that particular day. And so what you have is this succession and rising tide of conflict and incivility and the breakdown in the moral norms that usually govern how we talk to each other. And so it's not one thing. It's every day. It's the barrage of hostility that seems to mark our politics emanating from the White House, but not only in the White House, from the president's opponents as well. Now, I realize that some of you think I've just quoted Brooks as an endorsement or as a critique of one political viewpoint over another. I did not. I believe both our political parties want what is best for our country, but their identification of the problems and their respective solutions differ greatly. What concerns me is Brooks' description of this national scene that we feel every day. This rising tide of conflict and incivility and breakdown in the norms of how we talk to each other. And the reason I bring it up is it's made its way into our congregation. We don't seem to know how to talk about things political without, without getting defensive and, uh, and assertive and aggressive. Or, or drawing camps and factions. We are not about that.
I hear of small groups where people do not feel safe or trust that their words will be accepted. And people are leaving. Where the opinions are so strong and so forceful that others no longer feel that the space they share is sacred, nor do they feel honored or respected or heard with a sense of humility. This can't be. I understand that, that the political scene and the world today affects us all, and we need to vent. We need to talk about it. But we need to hold our commitment to one another and to Christ more important than anything else. That what someone says that we disagree with should not be a reason why we stand apart. I know what it's like when I'm frustrated. I want to find somebody who thinks like I do and say the thing that, that bothers me and have them go, yes. And, and you want that. But occasionally I talk to someone and they go, no. I don't see it that way. And you go, okay, on to someone else. <laughs> no, that's our chance to learn. That's our chance to truly be in fellowship and in community, to grow from different opinions. The, the scene in our nation should not characterize how we speak to one another. Our relationships must be characterized by this kind of wisdom that is pure, that is peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit that is impartial and sincere. If it's not, we're in trouble. James says that public conflict in a disrupted fellowship originates from a personal, private cause, a self-serving, self-pleasing heart. If we're to live well and to pursue a good life, then the transformation of our hearts must be evident in the way we relate to one another. If it's our own interests that we're advancing, then we've become friends of the world and, James says, enemies of God. And he says such alliance has severe effects not only on our community, on our relationships, but in the next passage, he's going to say it will even affect our prayers. That's how serious it is. May it not be so among us. May God's Spirit allow us to truly listen to one another, to truly care about one another, even when we disagree, to have the freedom to say we disagree, and that we to have norms that say conflict should not be something that hurts us. It should be something we grow from and grow with. I'm not saying don't allow any politics in your small groups or any political conversations, but politics itself, the taking sides and the factions, definitely no. 
Let us be people of God whose leadership, whose one another's leadership allows us to cast light into a situation and allows us to grow strong. Amen.